Hello and welcome everybody. This is Africa is a Country Talk. And if you don't know who I am, I'm William Shockey, one of the hosts of this program, along with my co-host, the ever suave, the ever sensational Sean Jacobs. He's streaming from Brooklyn in New York, and I'm in Johannesburg, South Africa. And if you don't know what this is, this is Africa is a Country's weekly talk and interview show. And as always, it is magnificently produced by Antoinette Engel in Cape Town. So if you missed our show last week, we spoke about Israel's history on the African continent and how it's recently been trying harder to court it in a heightened bit for international legitimacy. Uh, our guests were Yotam Gidron and Matsidisi Motswane, who spoke about Israel's African adventure in the 1960s, the rise of a securitized diplomacy which included uh, South Africa, as well as the influence, the growing influence of Christian Zionism in a range of countries, uh, Kenya, Uganda, South Africa. You can watch clips on that show on our YouTube channel, as well as the full episode and the entire archives um, of episodes on our Patreon. On today's show, uh, we have a great lineup. We are first joined by uh, Dana Balut and Adam Schober, two producers from a new podcast series on the Ugandan politician um, and recent presidential contender, Bobby Wine. And then we'll transition to talking to Emmy Bessier and Aaron Hyde Nolan about a new collection of Todd Webb's photography in Africa that they authored and put together. But well, as we always do, we, 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 we always think we have opinions. Let's talk about some stuff that's in the news. And as we know, like right now, it's still for everybody, it's about COVID. So. Yeah. Maybe you can take us through, and I'll, I'll, I'll maybe I'll now and then I'll just kind of cut in. Can you take us through on the latest on the good, um, the bad, and the ugly about about COVID, particularly for our for our African um, for people who are viewing this, and particularly for people who care about Africa? Yeah, it's this it's this bloody the, the bloody plague is the ugly about COVID. It's just I think I heard something like there'll be another seven years of this. Yeah, it's it's looking that way. It's looking that way, and I mean. I think to start with the ugly, one thing that's sort of testing everyone's hope that we are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel is these new variants which are starting to spread across the world and undermining the efficacy of the vaccines that were developed. And uh, this week, where I am in South Africa, uh, an announcement about a day or two ago, I can't really re remember, that the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine is not really effective against the variant first identified in South Africa. We have to be very particular about that. It's not the South African variant. It was first identified in South Africa. Uh, we don't claim ownership of it. It doesn't have a South African passport. We just found it here. And it's, it's in 30 other countries. I think technically, yeah. Technically, yeah. If, you're gonna say, if you're gonna say that variant, you have to say the South African country, 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 country X, country Y, country B. You have to put the whole thing. I think there's a scientific term for it, right? Something like B1. B1.315. Yeah. I made sure to remember that just before the show. B1.315. And it looks like I, I managed to, to remember it correctly. But yeah, this variant first identified in South Africa is proving to be the thorn in every vaccine site, especially AstraZeneca. So there were a number of tests that were conducted locally here and it discovered that, and this, is, this has been contested in the news for the last couple of days, but the clarity is that it's, it's not effective against preventing mild and moderate symptoms of COVID-19. 
And based on that evidence, the South African government has decided to suspend the rollout of the vaccine, obviously subject to further testing. The clinical trials that were conducted here only use a sample size of 1,750 people. It was mostly youngsters. So there's still not enough evidence about whether or not this is entirely accurate in the sense that it's not effective against mild and moderate symptoms. But the one thing that is being emphasized across the board is that the vaccine might still be effective in terms of preventing severe symptoms, hospitalization and death. So it might be useful at some point to roll out the vaccine just to ensure that people are protected against mortality. But as far as being protected against getting symptoms from the virus, the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, is not useful. And I mean, South Africa ordered one million doses of this vaccine. They came to our shores. Uh, we discovered it's not really effective against this is the variant first identified in South Africa. Uh, but not only that, but the South African government also discovered that the vaccines are expiring. The ones we ordered are expiring in April. So we have to roll them out as soon as possible if we ever choose to. Otherwise, they're going to be useless at some point. Well, that's that's the bad, right? That was, that was the bad. Exactly. The ugly uh, is... Is another place I have a connection to, the place my family's from uh, in Tanzania, where President John Magufuli continues to be a denialist about COVID-19. Uh, if you've been following updates and developments in, in, over there, since May last year, the government has stopped reporting rising cases. There was a national week of prayer that was undertaken. And after that, Magufuli declared that uh, Tanzania rather had successfully vanquished the virus. Uh, but that's not the case. It's there. Uh, people are dying. Uh, it's spreading really quickly. The variant first identified in South Africa has made its way there as well. But what the government has decided to do is decided to suppress all talk about the virus. Doctors are terrified about speaking openly about the extent to which it's ravaging the community. Uh, and the, the government is, is doubling down, right? They're saying they don't need to to immunize the population because why immunize the population if there's no virus? Uh, they're also running into these conspiracy theories about the vaccines being some Western plot to sort of gain control over Tanzania. And yeah, it's just a really depressing situation, to be honest. I mean, I have family that's being affected by all of this. Um, and it's 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 hard to, to see if there's a plausible way out. All you can imagine is that the government is going to keep keep on doubling down as it digs itself into this mess where having declared that there's no COVID in the country, there's no way now that it can backtrack and sort of just admit to, to having jeopardized so many lives in order to, to protect its reputation. So let's say that before we depress our, our, our viewers, <laughs> because we're all, uh, I, I suppose, it's got anxiety these days. Let me say something about the good. And the good is that we want to give a shout out to our friend um, and a recent guest on the show, Ashok Prabla. I hope he's watching from Bangalore. But this is a shout out to a really great article uh, that he wrote in the New York Times. Um, actually, I think it was uh, a couple of days ago, yeah? And it had a great title. It's time to trust China and Russia's vaccines. They too work and can help fill shortages everywhere. And this was a story about um, the efficacy of these, of the, the Chinese and uh, Russian drugs. And there's a lot of uh, sort of mistrust um, in the West. I suppose it, it has to do with these are both authoritarian regimes. And there's always questions about 
uh, whether or not they falsifying data or but um, there's been what what Ashal and his co-writer uh, Chiu Ling write is that there is enough you know scientists have done some studies on on the the Chinese and, and Russian um, state virus state vaccines and they found them to be quite effective and in this in this context we, we, we recommend that you go listen to the Ashal episode um, of kind of this fight for affordable um, uh, vaccines and that for vaccines that are available to everybody in the world. Um, this is, I think this is a good one. So I'm going to put that on the good. Yeah, I think so too. And I mean, one thing to just add to this uh, very quickly is that I think one thing that is uh, not so much a positive, but I think a lot of scientists and virologists just trying to get us to adjust our expectations about how we're going to manage this virus. You were saying earlier that some people are saying it's going to be around for seven years. Right. And on the whole, I mean, when you look at all of these vaccines that are available to us, the truth is that all of them at the very least protect against severe hospitalization and mortality. So as much as we might have for an extended period of time, a new normal where we just have to live with this virus, you might get symptoms, you might be fatigued for a couple of weeks, you might have your breathing capacity limited and so on, we're at least going to prevent widespread death. And I think that the vaccines, by and large, are capable of doing that. And I think that's one way of seeing the glass half full rather than half empty. Half empty. Amen. Exactly. So so to move on, uh, a reminder to, to hit like and subscribe on our YouTube channel down below, as well as to follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, and above all, please subscribe to our Patreon we can access all of the show's previous episodes, especially the one that Sean was just mentioning with Ashal. I think that's a really informative one. If you want to access the entire thing, do the right thing, subscribe to the Patreon. If you do that, you're not gonna you're gonna help us fund Africa as a country as a project as well. So we appreciate all of your support and we look forward to getting more of it. So to move on to our first guest, really excited to talk about this. Uh, and we're now joined by Dana Balut and Adam Schoberg. Dana is a Lebanese-American documentary producer, podcaster, and journalist. She's a producer and writer of his podcast series, Messenger, which we're about to talk about right now, and is also a producer for another film graphics documentary series, Traffic, with Mariana Vanzella. And she previously covered the Syrian war and its resulting refugee crisis for the Wall Street Journal. And Adam is a multifaceted filmmaker and commercial director with a passion for telling stories that bridge the gap between popular culture and social issues. His directing and producing has taken him to over 50 countries and it's led to projects with Nas, 21 Savage, Kanye West and Troy Polamalu. You know, those are, those are just That's small names. That's a footballer for the non, for the non <laughs> an American footballer. <laughs> and he's also working with both brands like Warby Parker, Mini Cooper and Apple. And both of them are the producers of this fabulous new podcast called The Messenger, which is by the Sudanese-American rapper Bas, and it's produced by Spotify, Dreamville Studios, and Awfully Nice. It follows Bobby Wine's rise from his upbringing to his artistic career and all the way to his political prominence. And if you don't know who Bobby Wine is, first of all, shame on you, but give you a little bit of information about him. His real name is actually Robert Kyagulani Sentamu, and he's the firebrand musician turned politician, even though he doesn't like being called a politician, that is challenging your wedding with Sudanese 
35-year reign as the president of Uganda. And just last month, on the 14th of January, Bobi Wine lost to Museveni in Uganda's presidential elections. And bearing in mind that despite widespread voter fraud, intimidation, and suppression, Wine managed to get 35% of the vote. And he's showing no signs of slowing down. So best believe that this is not the last thing we're going to hear of Wine. So Dana and Adam, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. And to start with a very basic question, which is, how did this project come about? You know, why Bobby Wine? I can go, Dana, if you want me to. Um, well, you know, I had, I've been uh, traveling to Uganda for a long time and, and working on uh, projects there. And so I, I already had kind of a connection to the country. I have a lot of friends there, my housemates from Uganda. And uh, I was working with another producer at Spotify who found a story, I believe, in the New York Times about Bobby Wine and became fascinated with him. And I, I'd already been aware of his um, sort of po recent political rise. And so he approached me and said, hey, would you be interested in um, working on this story? And um, you know, my background is mostly in filmmaking. I've never made podcasts before, uh, mostly the storytelling formats that I've done have been visual. But I listened to a lot of podcasts and my good colleague, Dana Balut, um, who I, I was working with a, on another project, is uh, has been working in the podcast space for a long time. So I reached out to her and said, hey, you know, I really care about the story. I want to make sure that it's told well and and that Bob, not only is Bobby's story told um, really from a Ugandan perspective, um, but that the context is given, that we can make it so that it's interesting for a Western audience. And so Dana immediately came on board and jumped at the opportunity and she's been an awesome co-producer on this. Does that sound about right, Dana? Yeah, thanks Adam. Thanks guys for having us, I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I, that sounds right. I mean, these kinds of, um, uh, I always say characters, um, personalities, figures like Bobby Wine don't come around too often in history. And um, I hope you guys, you know, I don't know how many people have listened, but I do think, um, you know, it's important to to tell these stories the best way that we know how. I, I wasn't as familiar with Bobby Wine before Adam um, told me about him, but what I am familiar is, you know, I grew up in a country that I would consider to be, you know, with the politics being oppressive, leaders that have been in power for decades, same names, if not them, then their sons. So I very much could relate to this notion of, um, wanting to break a cycle of nepotism, break a cycle of um, uh, of corruption, and so I I was very drawn to to Bobby Wine's story because I I felt it, you know, I, I felt it in in the way that even I grew up in, in my country. So one of the things that immediately um, caught the eye, we're going to get into some of the content in a minute, but which which what caught the eye was that it was Dreamville Studios who kind of Produce, you know, who's behind it, which was kind of, I mean, not not to say like, this is for people who don't know, this is like J. Cole's label, brand, whatever. And one of his artists, uh, Bax, is like the presenter of the show. And that, I think that was when I first saw the, the series and I, I listened to it on a long car ride. I was struck by that. I was like, this is interesting that, that J. Cole was doing this. So can you like maybe ex just a little bit on explain like why they got involved, like, I mean, I, I'm assuming that it has something to do with the fact that Bobby is a musician, but there must be more to this because it seemed sort of coming out of left field. I mean, it's great, but it was just like, wow, they're doing this now. And they're doing it about Bobby Wine. 
Well, I think I, you know, I can I, I can't speak on behalf of Dreamville, but I but my understanding, you know, first of all, uh, Boss grew up between Queens, New York, and Sudan, and and really is sort of a global citizen, and I think. Jay Cole and the Dreamville team, you know, are very interested in, in building bridges between the continent of Africa and the United States. So I don't think this is the only, the first, this may be one of the first, but I don't think this is the, the only um, avenue they want to take to try and create more dialogue. Because, you know, Africa has, become, has, has always been the source and an important source of global music. And I think deserves more of a center stage in the global conversations about music and politics. Yeah, I, I I don't have much to add to that other than you know I think um, we I won't speak on their behalf but but I do think Boss is very much one of his you know uh, one of the things that I think he values is is also creating this bridge between um, between uh, the music on the continent and the U.S. Um, yeah. and so I think this this was something that he wanted that he was interested in in doing and we're very grateful for it. Um, he, they've been amazing partners. Yeah, he does that. I like how it opens with kind of like his own story. Of, like he makes a point of telling his own story, his own problems with record labels, like uh, with his last album. And I also think in the beginning where sort of the connections to Black Lives Matter, um, to protests in the US, I found that that was, so if, if instead of treating Uganda and the, the story of Bobby Wine as something almost completely alien, and something that people couldn't relate to. I really liked that at the beginning of the, um, in the setup, you know, it was connected to some of other, other contemporary events. You could also hear like NSARS um, from Nigeria, I think is what I heard at the beginning of, of, the, of the series here. Yeah. yeah, and I think to, to add to that, I think it's especially important because, you know, as Africa as a country, we sometimes get a lot of criticism for who we have on the show and, a lot of people before this were kind of asking, oh, why are you having some Americans speaking about an issue that affects Ugandans? And I think what you've just answered now helps us understand that the point of the story is that it has a, a universal resonance. And it's a good thing when people across the Atlantic are taking as much interest in the politics of Africa because Africans will readily and happily consume the politics of the United States we absorbed that, but there's very little uh, reciprocation. I think that it's it's important that that is happening, and we should be we should be refreshed that that is happening. So to then ask I mean, a more pointed question, you mentioned about how this is heavily connected to music, especially Vanessa's involvement in the project. How why is music a, a central theme of the series, and and how do you guys weave the connection to politics and using? Bobby Wine is the as the figure to do that. Oh, yes, you're, I'm muted. you're muted. You're muted. Hello. Yeah, I think you're muted. There you go. Um, William, I wanted to make a point about what you had just said. I, I think it's always a balance, right? It's a balance between um, telling a story because you know working with people from the ground that grew up in this country that understand all the nuance is absolutely critical. And right. I think if we can do both things, you know, if, if, um, if we work A together, but also if there's a balance, it's always so helpful 
to have an outsider perspective sometimes. Like um, I will say like, for example, I grew up in Lebanon. A lot of the reporting is about war and bombs and this and all of that. And I, I also felt a bit annoyed sometimes at the fact that all, all of these foreign journalists would come and just write about that. But I do think there's also a value of doing both, having a strong local uh, voice and one that understands the depth and the nuance and then also having sometimes an outsider perspective as long as they're willing to do the work. Uh, and A, work with you know local journalists and B, really take time and not parachute into, into a story, which, which I hope that we, we did well. Um, so why music? Well, A, Bobby Wine is an artist. Um, and um, you know, telling the story um, sometimes, you know, for for both Boss and for Spotify, it's it's a nice way for people to also, you know, universal uh, music is universal, so it's a nice way to tell the story, uh, and have all of us kind of have some sort of input or feel like we could relate. I don't know, Adam, what do you think? Uh, well, I mean, I can speak personally. You know, music is. Um, I have cared about this place for a really long time, and I and I have seen, to, to your point, the way that stories about Africa have been told really poorly. Um, and I, you know, personally, what I really cared about in this podcast was making sure that it could reach a broad audience, and music is a really great vehicle for that. You know, uh, we had to walk a very fine line, many fine lines, I guess, very many tight ropes on this podcast. One was we wanted to get the history right, the context right. We also wanted it to be enjoyable to listen to. Um, we wanted to catch the ear of an 18 year old who normally listens to J. Cole's music and Boz's music, and also an academic from Northern Europe. Um, and uh, in many ways, music is the perfect avenue for that. And is sort of a, um, yeah, it's just a, it's a great um, avenue to be able to, to couch this very political, very specific, very local story. Because um, Bobby has been embraced by many people, by many uh, young people around the continent, but uh, but he's still um, his story is very specific to this one place and this one uh, political campaign recently, um, and so it's taking something that's very specific and making it more universal. And to, to Dana's point about telling stories about Africa, I, I agree with that criticism. You know, I this is something that is you know we're all on a journey in how we do this. Um, and I am a, I'm a white man going to Africa and, and trying to produce a podcast about Africa, but we also have to bring that story to a specific, we wanted it to be, you know, the largest part of our audience is American and we wanted it to be something that an American audience could um, relate to, which is why we tried to, you know, at every turn put, you know, if we, if we had, if there was a Ugandan who could say something, we would, we would have the Ugandan say it, you know, rather than the other academic. But of course we have a chorus of voices in there because we also want to have all you know a variety of the top people who can speak on bobby and the issues so um no, no I, was, I think that's one of the strengths of the program that it that it basically does a lot of history so you know very well known like derek peterson who, who this just we know him on the show he's a historian of uganda um he has a great for people who don't know on twitter he runs these like clips that he gets from these news agencies and puts them and tweets about them with a great and I think Nana Schneider, the name Schneiderman, like you had all these, like, so you, as you're right, you had like, you had like the academics represented, you had local journalists who conducted interviews um, with local people. You had Bobby's, Bobby Wine speaking for himself, you know, like there's a thread, like there's also his like own story. Like you would, you would kind of, you know, take back, like who's Bobby Wine? Like how did, 
had was it was Bobby Wine really poor? So you get that you get like the backstory of Bobby Wine. Um, the other one was like you understand like sort of how Museveni got where Museveni got. Like so, we go mm -hmm. back, look back at the 1970s, the 1980s, and I think I really enjoyed. That is one thing that I sort of enjoyed about it. And maybe this this could be if you may want to say a little bit for someone like how, as you said, you, we sort of a little bit talk about how do you make this kind of programming. And we sort of curious, like, how did you go about kind of doing the research? It does sound like you you were very deliberate. Like, you deliberately went and said, we have to cover the history. Uh, we have to prioritize local voices. And, and all the complexity has to come out all the, all the in the story. Can you talk a little bit about like, just how you went about doing that? Yeah, m many, many hours. <laughs> many hours. Uh, Adam, I, I don't know, you can speak about this as well, but we've been working on this for two years now. Um, and we've had, you know, most most of our conversations with people never make it into the podcast, right? It's about speaking to people. I mean, Adam and I spoke to countless people about their perspectives, where they stood. We talked to people from different, you know, political backgrounds, people that are pro-Bobby, people anti-Bobby. I mean, we worked very closely with our local producers, Halima and Alan, and uh, and we always went back to them, you know, with their thought. It, it just takes a, a team, a, a strong team, and we're so lucky that we had amazing producers uh, in Kampala that helped us along the way. Um, but it it takes a lot of time, and I and and that goes back to the the notion of not parachuting into a topic, but really spending. I mean, Halima interviewed Bobby maybe like five six times. Um, we yeah, we've interviewed Bobby. Yeah, it just takes. She also on the on the program actually. She she even talks about like when she first talks to him and like she sets it up. So like all of that is also part of the programming. Yeah. Sorry, Adam. Well, and we uh, you know, to, to Dana's point, you know, like Dr. Crystal Klingenberg, who's an ethnomusicologist and a Ugandan American, we probably right. talked to her four times. Sometimes they'd be two hours long, and I feel like those conversations alone could be an interesting podcast. You know, I would be mm -hmm. I would come out of those conversations so enriched. And then she ends up, you know, a few minutes here and there in the right, story. Right. Um, but also, you know, we had to create a sound and a, you know, the, before that we before we started and and actually started cutting, we didn't really have a, a podcast we were thinking about that we could be like, that's an example of what we're doing. Like, we kind of were trying to do something from scratch creatively. So we worked with a script side by side with an edit early on to try and craft a feel and a sound and create kind of a tone for the podcast. And that was one of the hardest things to do up front too, because we were gathering all this research and we have this giant stack of transcripts, um, but we also have to now make a show out of it and make it interesting. And so that was its own adventure. And once we kind of were able to get the first and second episode done, I think we were like, okay, we've got a sound. And now we can craft the rest of the show with that sound in mind, which made it a little bit easier. Yeah, one of, one of the things, I mean, I, you, you can hear we really like the program. And the part of this is we would like more people to see it. Um, one thing I also like is how it opened, like this sort of uh, the setup, which is like, you know, uh, Kanye West went to, went to Uganda with Kim Kardashian. They are met by, by uh, Museveni. And then there's this bizarre thing where I think he, Kanye gave him a pair of Yeezys and so it's like that setup, which is sort of like the usual setup if you're doing something about Uganda, I suppose, like, you know, the sort of, um, the, the if, if there was a little bit on TMZ, which is probably, you know, mm -hmm. something on Twitter, that would be it. 
it would be, be people would like make fun of Kanye West and we'd sort of move on. And then you sort of just give a sense that like at that point, Bobby Wine critique, like publicly con condemns, like when well, I condemns or cr cr criticizes Kanye West, it's like, why are you doing this? And then, then that's a nice, and I like that, that that's the hook to, because that's what people talk about Kanye West. But then after that comes the deep dive and I really enjoyed. And then, as I said, the back and forth jumping would sort of like pass reminding people that, you know, I live in America, this is what's happening in the US at this point. And then you go back to you, to Uganda. So those are the things that I think is, was very valuable about the series. Yeah. Well, and we wanted to draw a contrast, oh, I'm sorry, I was just gonna say, we wanted to draw a contrast a little bit with, you know, it's, it's easy to throw shade at Kanye, but you know, this is an example of parachuting into a place and not really having a context for it. And we wanted to draw a comparison from that to what we were about to do afterwards. Sorry, William, yeah. interrupting you. No, no worries, no worries. I mean, I was just going to say that what Sean just pointed out now, I think, is testament to just how thoroughly you guys researched this because I actually had no idea that Bobby Wine said something when Kanye visited Uganda a few years ago. And what I want to ask is, having amassed all of this research, I think you guys probably have the most substantial archive of research on Bobby Wine, enough for someone to produce a biography if they wanted to. What, what do you think Bobby Wine represents in Uganda? What does he represent internationally? Oof. Um, big question, I think, yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah, it's a very big question. Um, I think that answer changes to who you ask it. So I, I, won't, I won't try and speak on anyone's behalf except mine, but I'll tell you what Bobby Wine means to me. Bobby Wine, for me, although an international figure, um, is a voice of youth, is a voice of speaking truth to power, is uh, being relentless in your effort and using your craft, in his case, music, for social justice and, and what you believe is the right path to take forward and being absolutely uh, relentless and determined in, in, that, in, that, uh, in that cause and in that journey. And, and and I have, I personally have felt so inspired in, in that. And, and I hope that other people try and use their crafts for what they believe is good um, and, and, and just. Yeah, and I, I think um, to me, you know, Bobby represents a moment in Uganda's history too. We don't know yet what's gonna happen from here out. But, you know, when we interviewed him while he was under house arrest a few weeks ago, I asked him, um, you know, if you could do it all over, would you do this again? You know, do you have any regrets? And he was like, I didn't choose this really. The moment chose me. And I believe him when he says that because this really did tank his career in a lot of ways. <laughs> he can't perform music. He can't make money in the ways that he used to. And in fact, many of the people around him who are musicians who have now become a part of his campaign and his political infrastructure also can't make music or play shows. Like, that ship has sailed. They are now on a, they, they kind of got pulled into something. And I think, you know, Stella Nyanzi, uh, who's another activist in Uganda, I think she said it really well, you know, that Bobby, he may not be perfect. He may not be the most well-spoken or the most, she's like, his music isn't my, what does she say, cup of tea? <laughs> but she's <laughs> like, but he is the person that, as the opposition that, that is 
the, has, that has energized people the most in the country. And so I think the moment sort of chose him and that makes me want to question, okay, well then what is that moment in, in, in Uganda's history? Because they are in a transition, they are hungry for real, real actual deep reforms. And I think he represents that. And I mean, what to ask maybe uh, a final question because we don't want to keep you guys for too long. I think it's interesting because you describe wine as this individual who's very much in the process of, of figuring things out. He's answering to this moment where people have a very general demand for change. That demand needs some specificity in terms of what those reforms are, how the structure needs to change. So as wine is navigating this process of figuring out exactly what it is he wants to present to Ugandans, what is, it, what is his source of inspiration? What are the political figures, the movements that he's drawing from and using to shape his political development? Um, yeah, I, I can speak a little bit about it, but in our final episode, in, in episode eight, I think you'll, you'll hear a little bit about that. I mean, when we interviewed Bobby, he says a lot of things. Previous musicians like Fela Kuti, who we bring up often in, in the podcast, Bob Marley, um, other, uh, you know, other artists that have used their, their, um, their music for change in their own countries. Uh, but also previous opposition leaders. I mean, Bobby Wine is not the first uh, person in Uganda to oppose President Museveni, um, one of the biggest known and probably, you know, still to this day, biggest opposition figure in Uganda is Kiza Besaje and he, Dr. Kiza Besaje, and he has been, um, you know, uh, running against Museveni for many, many years, way before Bobby Wine. So I think he also, Bobby would say that a figure like um, Dr. Besaje also inspired him. Um, I don't know, I don't, uh, what do you think? Well, that's, a good, that's a good answer. That is a good well, answer. Well, and I, I guess I would, so those comparisons are, I think are right to make. And then I would also want to just add a little bit of a distinction um, because, you know, Bobby has done something that is actually fairly unique compared to Buju Banton, um, Fela Kuti and Bob Marley in that he's really entered the political arena in, in a very, in a, in a way that's seen it's hard to deny as legitimate. You know, he's been willing to play the game um, and really, you know, he, he ran a campaign and won in a by-election and became a parliamentarian, entered parliament and was able to sort of coalesce the, the, op, the minority opposition in parliament. But he also then went all over the country and campaigned on behalf in, in elections across the country on behalf of other candidates to try and bolster um, the opposition. And, you know, even though he has... Uh, officially lost uh, the most recent presidential election, the opposition gained a ton of seats in parliament. So, you know, that's one of the ways in which I think he's unique. He's drawn from Fela Kuti in how he's used his music and his activism and, 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 and merged the two. He's also, um, you know, Fela definitely engaged with body politic in a very real way, but Bobby, I think, has taken it to a whole nother extreme in a, in a way that's very interesting. Well, this is, uh, we could talk to you about this and there's, there's many other little parts that I could get into because I really got into the, into, the whole Bob Marley thing was even the opening of an episode kind of, you know, uh, going back to the 1970s. But in any case, this is kind of an endorsement from us by telling people, go, go listen to the show. I, I don't know if you, if you need a subscription for Spotify, 
Um, I think I see. I may have seen one of the episodes somewhere on YouTube. Uh, somebody yeah, you can you can listen to the episode one on Dreamville's uh, uh, YouTube channel. They have episode one there, and then I believe South Africa. You have Spotify, and I think you, I don't even know that you need a subscription. You might just get some ads. And Uganda people can also access it on Spotify. I'm assuming. They haven't expanded to certain countries. That's actually coming down the pipeline. So we've been feeding links to Ugandans so that they can still listen to it. So. Yeah. One more question for us, though, is that will there be another season? That's a good question, and I won't say no, but I can't say yes yet. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> hey, well, okay, we'll leave it there. You guys were great guests. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Thanks Adam. So much for having us. Thank you so Thanks much for having us. So, yeah. so thank, you. thank you very much. So now to talk about a different kind of storytelling, um, a new collection of photographs by the late American photographer Todd Webb um, has just been released by Thames and Hudson. Uh, you might know... Uh, Todd Webb's um, shots of everyday life in big cities like Paris and New York, but few know about the work that he did in Africa. And basically what happened is in 1958, Todd Webb was invited by the United Nations um, to document uh, Togoland, which is now Togo, uh, Ghana, Kenya, the Federation of Rhodesia, Nyasaland, which is now Zimbabwe, Zambia, and Malawi. Somali, the, the, the trust uh, was called, the, then a trust territory of Somaliland, now Somalia, Sudan, Tanganyika, and Zanzibar, which is now merged as uh, Tanzania. By the way, that, that whole intro thing was a lesson in how borders were redrawn um, during colonialism <laughs> and out of colonialism. Um, so the saying that Africa was not a country. <laughs> yeah, it, that, it is, it's a country. So he went on a five month assignment. And he was equipped with uh, three cameras and he was briefed uh, to document industrial progress. So he returned with approximately 1,500 color negatives. I mean, this was kind of unique at the time, color photography. Um, but here's what's interesting. Less than 20 of them uh, were published in black and white by the United Nations Department of Public Information. And it, it, it would be interesting um, if you can get access to the book to just see what the UN picked as images. Um, the archive was then lost for over 50 years, and it was only rediscovered uh, by the by you know in in 2017. And we'll tell that we'll I guess we'll get into that story with us. So the new collection of these photographs, which is called um, Todd Webb in Africa Outside the Frame, uh, was just released by Thames and Hudson, and we now joined uh, by the two authors that put it together, um, along with and the, the book is great because there's also um, accompanying commentary and essays by various scholars and artists, like the writer Emmanuel Iduma, uh, Ali Jimali Ahmed, who, who, who writes on web's images of Somalia. There's an interview with the celebrated Ghanaian photographer, James Barnor, and the visual artist Rehema Tachage writes about web's photographs of um, Tanganyika and Zanzibar. So that long intro by me aside, onto our guests. So we have two guests and we're gonna see them on on the screen right now. First, uh, we have Eme um, Besir, I think I said that correctly, uh, who teaches African art and cultural studies at Bates College in the US. She received a PhD in African art from Harvard University and has published on contemporary African art and photography and Sukuma culture in Tanzania. I should have said Tanzania. Uh, or I, I say Tanzania. Tanzania is good. Tanzania. 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 Okay, well, take a She's currently working on a manuscript on Sukuma power objects. And then our second and last guest is Aaron Hyde Nolan, 
who is a visiting assistant professor at Maine College of Art. And her research, her research brings together a photographic history and visual culture from the Mediterranean and Atlantic worlds, investigating cross-cultural modes of exchange. And she has a PhD from Boston University. There's a lot of PhDs in the room today. First of all, for people not familiar with the photography, with photography or the history of photography, who is who is Todd Webb? I can, I can I can start if that's um, if that's helpful. Todd Webb is an American photographer who um, really began to make images after um, after the Great Depression when he lost his job and he studied making photographs with Ansel Adams and um, became good friends with the American celebrated American photographer Harry Callahan um, and after serving. Uh, in World War II, he returned to the United States and made the pilgrimage to New York where Alfred Stieglitz was living at the time and paid homage to Stieglitz as, as American photographers did at that moment. And he um, and then he, he really turned, turned towards becoming a photographer and making images as his sole focus in um, in the mid 1940s, after he was 40 years old, so he had many different lives um, and came to photography rather late. Stieglitz was famously married to Georgia O'Keeffe, who became a very dear friend of Todd's, um, and he had many commissions, including working for the Standard Oil Company, the Marshall Plan, and then also for the United Nations, which of course is the topic of of our conversation today. So to then ask uh, a follow-up question precisely about Todd Webb's photography on Africa, uh, this collection came out after these photos that he took of the continent resurfaced after, after 50 years. So where were they for 50 years? How come they were only uh, rediscovered in, in 2017? Um, Amy, I, I can start. I, so I managed the Todd Webb archive for five years while I was in graduate school. It was my my graduate school job. And I never saw these while I worked there. Um, and they came back to the archive two years after I had stopped working there. Um, there was a negotiation about part of Todd's body of work in the 70s, where he was selling it. And um, it was a deal that that didn't go as well as he would have liked and a number of the images in his in his archive at that point he was in his in his 70s in the 1970s um, because he was born in 1905 um, he he let a number of images go without ever, without ever getting paid for them and I think he kind of came to terms with the fact that like it wasn't he he had done what he wanted to in his life and he was it wasn't he was he felt like he didn't need to recover them and Betsy Evans Hunt, who now runs the Todd Webb Archive, um, I think was able to relocate the images in, you know, I think four years ago and able to purchase them back and reacquire them into the archive. When she repurchased them, she did not know that the negatives of his five month journey on the continent were part of it. This larger reacquisition yeah. um, package basically and so she received i think five steamer trunks was it five around five steamer trunks i mean like old steamer trunks that you would put on a boat to go across the atlantic um, and in them were these color negatives that she had never seen before as a part of his archive so it was a completely new um addition and and window 
into who Todd was as a photographer and the projects that he worked on. Yeah, there's the, the story of how they found the, how she found the, photo, the, the photographs in someone's basement. Um, that that is a that's in the book. It's a it's a great story. So one of the things you are you you do deal with in the book, so sort of like in the opening and the introduction of the book, is you you talk a you sort of um, kind of confront this question of of the the photographer or the artist as an autonomous maker. Like, do you want to say a little bit about that? Is it because it had to do with images about Africa, or is this part of sort of just critiquing that that notion of the the photographer as an autonomous maker? One of our many, we had so many conversations throughout the, the three years that we, or th over three years that we worked on the project. And one was really just acknowledging the fact that photographs are never neutral. So both considering, and, and one of the things that was really important to us was considering each of these images as having, uh, as being in many ways multi-vocal. Multi There's both the um, perspective of the UN, because this is a UN commission, so he's there doing a job specifically for the UN. And then you have Todd's eye as a photographer. And then we also really wanted to tell the story of the photographs themselves, what's happening in them, but also to try to give the photographs a, some life and allow the photographs to speak for themselves in a way. Um, it had to do with many different ways of being and thinking about the voices in the photographs that couldn't speak. And this is where for us, it became very important for the project to be collaborative. Um, and we very much see this as, Aaron and I might be listed as editors, but this is very much a collaborative project. Yeah, and can I just add to that quickly, that I think really we, we from the beginning of the writing of the book, we really agreed that dealing with this material required a methodological shift Right, a shift where we would acknowledge that this never be one point of view, right? Um, and so, and that point of view, as Amy said, the the collaborative aspect of the project is is the project for us, right? So the inclusion of many different authors um, in the book project, but then also the exhibition that accompanies the book, which is open right now at the Minneapolis Institute of Art will travel to the National Museum of Tanzania and open in Dar es Salaam on November, I'm sorry, on December 9th of this year. Um, and the curators at the museum there who, who we are working with will, will install their own version of the show. Um, and so it was really important to us to have this be um, a project that really didn't, didn't propose the artist's own vision, but acknowledge the fact that this was a commission project that was paid for by the UN, um, and his itinerary was created by the UN, and now the photographs operate as something outside of that commission and acknowledging the different perspectives into that. Yeah, including the artist's vision. So you have the photographer's vision, the UN's vision, you have, you know, and Todd Webb was really a, uh, somebody who is the thoughtful seer through his photographic lens. So there's that, but then there's also, he's also photographing something that is a commission. Right, and this one, I wanted, I wanted a producer to put back the image, the Texaco uh, of, of the gas station, because, yeah. and maybe if you could just, because in the book, you really kind of, just if you can use this image, just to kind of talk a little bit about that politics of the, of the, or the, the, the photographer as this autonomous maker, maybe if you just, I mean, I, I'm going to do a bad job. So just quickly, if you want to take us through this photo, for example. 
And I can I can start, but Aaron, will you you'll jump in too? We've had so many conversations about this image. This image, I think it's one of both of our favorites. Um, it's this image is such a great example of the many ways that, <clears throat> excuse me, that we can view any one photograph. Um, on we could read this at at a surface level, and we don't really know what's happening for the man who's you know holding the um, the pump. We don't really, and actually, if you can see, it might be hard to see on the um, on the screen, but like if you look really closely, there's a man in the window in the Texaco station. There's two men off to the left. Um, so we don't really know what he's thinking. And if we read this at the surface level, this kind of contains all this beautiful, happy optimism of the 1950s. Um, but there's also so many different ways to read it. And maybe Aaron, I could like, I could pass it off to you. We've talked about the the idea of like, it also looks like an advertisement for a multinational corporation. for right. And we've also, Aaron did a, a really nice essay in the book looking at um, kind of the, impact of extractive industries on on the continent. And maybe I'll, I'll hand that off to you. That was my baton to you, Erin. I think one of the things that is so compelling uh, for me about this, the images, the photographs, is the duality that exists, the tension that exists between how incredibly luscious and dare I say beautiful the photographs are, right? Almost indulgent mm -hmm. in, their, in their colors and their composition. And yet there's always this other story that sits below that surface, right? And it's like what Tina Camps would call the, the quiet, right? And so we've tried really hard to acknowledge that tension and on that ambivalence where Todd's photographs can be both things at once, be both beautiful and demonstrating the trauma and violence of extractive industries on the continent. Mm. And I mean, it's such, yeah, all of these photos, I think, take place at a very interesting time for the continent. And you guys have a lovely phrase that you use in the introduction where you talk about them so them being situated at the intersection of colonialism and independence. And when you when you take that context into mind, you you start to wonder when Todd is commissioned by the United Nations, what exactly is the image of 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 Africa that they wanted to project, but but before that, you you start to ask yourself, well, what is the United Nations Office of Public Information? Um, why did they commission this project? What is their role in relation to the United Nations as a whole? And it's a, I mean, the 1960s was such an interesting time for the United Nations globally because um, it was almost as if against you know the the communist threats in in the East, they wanted to to also this this there's some some of these photos have a kind of Soviet realist feel almost. Um, and, and it feels like the United Nations is, is trying to conduct its own, um, it's, it's, it's engaging in its own counter narrative effort in Africa. Um, so yeah, that was a, just a very sort of chaotic way of, of wanting to ask about the United Nations and, and their role in this and what was the office of, of public information? What did it seek to achieve as part of this this burgeoning uh, global force, i.e., the UN. And just, just to add to that, as we, we when before we came on the before we came on the air, we I was just sort of mentioning in passing that what the UN eventually publishes, the kind of images that they publish, they it's sort of almost wide-angled. It's very far from the action. It looks very uh, mechan mechanistic, as opposed mm -hmm. to like, the images that Todd is connect. All these like you know the uh, 
when they find out he's negative, are much more like, as you said, less, more lively kind of African continent, complicated, but that emerges out of those images. Um, I can start and then, um, Amy, if you want to jump in about the UN. I mean, I think, William, your observation that of these or their relationship to the Cold War context um, is really important in terms of understanding why why this project was happening when it was happening. Um, and, you know, the UN Office of Public Information was would would publish these brochures which are illustrated in the book and in which some of the images are published um and i think they they really were interested in documenting what they referred to as a quote changing africa in order to record technology and industry um as it was develop developing again i'll use the word in quotes across across the continent um and we can see that that there is this, um, you know, in many ways, the UN, you could argue that the UN's commission might extend the history of colonial photography on the continent, which had at its essence, this interest in visualizing and documenting otherness. But then there also is this at the same time, right? The, the UN has this vested interest in supporting newly independent African nation states. Um, as it as it did beginning in 1960. Amy, I'll pass the pass the mic to you. I think I think that describes it really well. But what's um, what's really interesting is that um, I mean, just to add to that too, you have um, almost I would say another tension in the photographs where Todd is um, is commissioned to document this industry and technology and changing Africa. Um, and you also have his own, that, that he writes about in his journal, his own preconceived notions of what is Africanness. So you have these, almost a tension of these two things coming together in the photographs as well, where you have you know, this, this commission to document this very um, an industrial and modernizing Africa. And you also have Todd Webb who has an idea of what Africa should be through the large visual narrative of what's been available, what everybody in America at the time that he was growing up and um, was exposed to. You have the visual narrative in Europe and America at the time that was very, we could say, primitivizing and romanticizing and exoticizing of the African continent. And that was very much in like tension and, con and, and contrast to the, um, to the actual commission by the UN. Yeah, this was one of we went, I was going to ask that to you next because I was going to observe, you know, this this which which comes out in the in the book, which is his own expectations of the trip, that he has this as you said this tension because he says Togoland and Tanganyika, mm -hmm. uh, the most African, and he says Rhodesia is sort of like Omaha or some other Midwestern town. He's always sort of disappointed. Yeah. Um, but, but the, 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 the image that's on the screen right now is of a street scene of Bulawayo, Bulawayo in the Dead of Asia. Um, and, and so the thing there, the question I actually want to ask, or just observe, and maybe you can respond to it. I think he's also, as he moves, so he starts the trip in Togoland. So there's an election, it's a, there's elation, you know, the images of people kind of celebrating freedom. And as he moves, I think as he moves more to the South, um, the, it becomes uh, not depressing necessarily, um, but he, he then starts to see more kind of like 
how capitalism, you know, the, the in Zambia or in southern Rhodesia, well, he's now Zimbabwe, right? He's he actually you can see like these sort of worker housing, you can see industrial plants. Like there's there's a much more like it seems like at that point in Southern Africa, capitalism is more like intense as, as perhaps in, in, in the way that it had had um taken over the, the, the landscape, if you want, then it were like the sort of more optimistic feeling that he's getting in the northern, the, the western and sort of the, the north northeastern part of the continent. Is that a correct observation? Yeah. And to add to that, sorry, to add to that quickly, I mean, another, another dimension of his travels further down south is that he also starts to confront an unchanged Africa because there's still racial segregation in, in Rhodesia, Zambia and Zimbabwe. And he doesn't even go to South Africa where apartheid at that time is in full force. So I think, it's said, he said, I think he said something like it's 10 times worse. He writes this white yeah. and says, look how terrible it is in Rhodesia. It's like 10 times worse in South Africa. Yeah. So there's a contradiction in the very project that he was assigned by the United Nations where Africa in many ways hadn't changed, hadn't broken away from the stranglehold of, of colonialism. Yeah. Yeah, do you want to comment on that? His journals and his um and his in his letters, he really talks about this as well. And yet sometimes he's a little uh, it's it's hard to read between the lines, but it's really um he really does talk about this. He had a he really had a tough time witnessing the racial segregation in in Rhodesia, um, specifically in the Rhodesias. And and he almost even talks about like he breathes a little bit of a sigh of relief when he gets to Tanzania, which he sees as more quote unquote Africa, and doesn't doesn't call it Topeka or Omaha as he does um, parts of Rhodesia. Um, but there is he, th I think that there is a little bit of an evolution of how he's viewing the trip through um, as he moves through the different countries. And you also, just on that, you also make a comment in the book that he's sort of. He's doing this while in the U.S. civil rights is picking up, um, yeah. and he had done work before that in the South, right? Yes. Yeah. He, he, I mean, how did he react to that? Like, how did he live that contradiction? Because it sounds like he didn't. Did he did he say much about civil rights in the U.S.? Was he sort of making those connections? I think he definitely made those connections. Um, he doesn't write specifically comparing it to civil rights in the U.S., but we have his his he was such an amazing um, journal keeper, and we have his journals from um, from his whole all of his travels. He kept journals throughout his life, and Aaron, you can speak more about that. Um, but he has very amazing journals through the trip. And if anyone is in Minneapolis and can see the show, we haven't seen the show yet at Minneapolis Institute of Art. Um, he saved things like train tickets and brochures and different, and he saved everything. And some of these are in the exhibition in Minneapolis. Um, but in the in the journals, he specifically addresses um, the racial segregation that he's seeing in Rhodesia. And he doesn't directly, actually he does, there's a couple of letters that he sends to his wife where he compares, he says, this is, um, this is as bad as what I've seen he has a couple of comparative um, comparisons. Erin, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think so. I think it's interesting to contextualize it a little bit because in 1955, so just three years before his trip to the continent, Todd received a Guggenheim grant to walk across the United States and photograph his walking tour. And 
during that time, he traveled through the Jim Crow South um, and began to make photographs of the racial segregation there. And um, while still maybe struggling to um, participate in a fully um, self-reflective way, he was aware, very aware of, of these of these problems and even use the word white supremacy in his description of his trip in 1955. So he was even using language then, like the term white supremacy um, that, that you know, we are still grappling with now. And so I think it's important that even though, even if he was maybe not able to articulate all of those feelings, he was bringing that experience with him during his travels in 1958. And to, to ask, uh, what was the state of, of African photography at the time? Um, was, was it the case that, like, were there any Africans on the continent at the time taking photographs of their surroundings? Uh, was, did he ever interact with any African photographers? Did he take an interest in African photography? Uh, what's, your, what's your understanding and, and what has your research revealed about about those questions? So the first part of the question, um, to answer the first part, there were incredible photographers um, on the continent photographing at this time. And we've I had, had many great chapters in the books, in the book about them, but yeah, sorry, sorry. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you know, James Barner among them, um, James Barner, who is a Ghanaian photographer who had a photo studio in Accra at the same time that Todd Webb was in Accra. So he had his photo studio there. Todd Webb could have visited, but they never, they never met. Um, they probably were there at the same time, uh, but incredible photographers um, taking photographs in Africa at this time and long before. And it's we've had conversations about why um, why did uh, did the UN not choose one of the many um, drum magazine photographers for that matter, Peter Magubane, um, who is taking incredible photos in South Africa at the time. It, it, there's there's just such a huge amount. Uh, there, there's so many amazing photographers that could have been chosen, and yet they chose an American with whom they already had a, a relationship. He had done photographs for them in Mexico, and he knew the he knew basically the head of the UN um, Public Relations Office. Um, but so. We don't know why they didn't choose an African photographer, but there were so many. He also had photos taken in a, um, he had studio portraits taken in. Um, in Rhodesia, yeah, in Southern Rhodesia, yeah. Exactly, yeah. in Salisbury. And he um, had those printed when he was there. So we know he interacted and he also went and photographed with a, a Tanzanian or at the time Tanganyikan photographer. They went out and did, did a photo shoot for a day together, sort of went and had fun taking pictures together. Um, so we know that he had some um, some uh, encounters with African photographers, but not maybe not so many. Yeah, and can I just add to that quickly too, that I think one of the questions that we've thought a lot about in terms of like, well, why did the UN select Todd for this project um, is, you know, I don't, we, as Aime said, we don't, we don't have the answer to that question, but what our thinking and research revealed is that these systems, right? And the UN, of course, is not a national a national government, um, but that these systems of power and control, like the UN, were also systems um, that supported 
mostly white men, right, and employed them. And so it really like reveals the politics of that system more than anything else um, in terms of why they why they chose him. Yeah. So this this has been wonderful, and we could talk about this forever. I I really I mean the, the sort of maybe this is the question I want to ask in the end. So in hindsight, if we compare the photo the photography of the continent today um, and the photography of the continent then, um, I mean it's a you know what is different and what is the same. And I and I also maybe I want to add to this. I also feel like in a way Todd Webb is almost a bit of an outlier. If not the stuff that was published in in the UN publication, but the stuff that we're seeing now, that he's a bit of an outlier. And do you mean in terms of like, in terms of colonial photography? Yeah, or in terms of like, I mean, do we, has is, is it, are things different? I know we speak, we speaking that there was always a tradition of African photographers, but in the photography about Africa, and I'm sort of, what I'm also sort of kind of, Todd Webb is kind of is interesting because like, when you see the work, you are sort of like, wow, this is a man who, as you point out, like it, it's a, it's a weird commission. It's it's the it's the way the UN worked. They gave it to a white American guy to go and do this. But what he got, which is maybe this, is the, maybe I want to, maybe the thing. It's I, almost like, yeah. It's I, guess, I think this, this, what Sean is speaking to is something I felt, which is that you know it's it's telling that in 2021 you see photography of Africa like this, and that feels fresh and new, even though those photos were taken in 1958. Right. So there's a strange way in which a lot of what Todd did reinforced these unequal power relations, but also in another way, what Todd did is an outlier, even in the way photos of Africa are taken today. So I guess it's just, yeah, asking if you guys have any, any thoughts on that. I would completely agree. I mean, I think that the photos for us, I mean, they, they sort of, I think for both of us, they sort of took our breath away. Like when you first see them, they're really remarkable images. And yet there's also all of this information and all of these stories to unpack in them. But one of the things that we found most striking is that they do not reproduce a visual narrative of the continent um, that is strictly exoticizing, romanticizing. It's a very, it's a very, um, fresh, so, so we, there's so many photos that we can't right. generalize completely, but of the ones that you're showing too, it's a very, it is, it does feel like some of them could have been taken today. The women in the yellow dresses could be supermodels, like walking across like a, you know, a beach in Mogadishu today. Um, but so many of them are just, um, they just have such a life in them. There's, yeah. a, way, there's a way I actually liked, uh, I was thinking a lot about this project called Everyday Africa. In which there's a there's a difference between the kind of images that gets reproduced. And I think the originators of that series they also talked about this. Like, what are the images that they took and then would be used by agencies or newspapers, and this, that they became sort of obsessed with wanting to let people see all these other images, and so they connected with African photographers and created this like Instagram account. So I think that that's an interesting. You know, you know what I'm trying to get at? I think that this is where we're sort of driving at. I think Todd, in that way, Todd Webb for me is very useful and interesting and the work he produces is very valuable. Yeah. I yeah. Think, oh, sorry, Aaron. I, I, no, go ahead. I think there's an opportunity for these images because they are so unique in within the colonial era or, or that moment of like in between colonialism and independence where they actually have an opportunity to kind of unpack a new story and tell many different stories. So that's what we really hoped to do with the book. 
Yeah, I think I would just add that, you know, all of all of what you're saying um, reminded me of this bit in Todd's journal where he talks about, I think it's in 1960, where he pitches these photographs to a publisher in the US and the publisher, you know, very openly rejects it and says it's not the kind of Africa that Americans want to see. And so, um, you know, it's almost as though they were you know, the American public was not ready. I mean, it's, we're speaking about, I meant the American public, the exhibitionist here, um, but that the American public particularly, because this really is a kind of transnational, transatlantic project, um, was not, you know, was not interested in these kinds of images. And so um, they really got kind of shut down and, and that sort of speaks to their dormancy for this long period of time. And so their, their revelation now, um, I think is that it reminds, it almost is allows us to think back both to 1958 and the 1960s and the civil rights era in the United States. Of course, I wasn't alive then, so I'm talking about it as if I was there, but I wasn't. Um, but, um, but like this, mo this really, this really powerful and important moment in American history, right? They allow you to time travel, right? Which is the magic of photography, and that's that's really. Um, really wonderful about that. I just wanted to quickly, I have the book in front of me where he said, uh, when he offered the book up in, uh, in he writes in the 1960s that the Africa book is, is off as a picture book, um, too expensive and limited by its interest in economics. I think they are wrong. I have an idea that they want the picture book full of Watusi, pygmies, I mean, you know, given his language of the time, Maasai, lions and women's with exposed breasts. So he was very aware that he was producing a different kind of, a different, you know, different, he had all this work, this, this uh, different set of images. But we're happy to see the, the light of day of these images, yeah. And thank you so much to the both of you for coming onto the show to talk about this book. Please everyone, if you can check out the book, it's just a been little released. Bit, it's a little bit expensive, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's also, I mean, there's, there's I mean, they're, they're going to be circulating. Keep your keep your eyes open for the photographs. Um, hopefully, they'll they'll be at an exhibition near you sometime soon. And we really appreciate your time. If we can into a museum, that's the question. Erin, do you just want to repeat the 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 places where where it's going to be again? Sure. Yeah. So it's open right now at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, um, and it will be open through June 13th of this year and it will travel to the National Museum in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and open on December 9th of this year. Um, so those are the two places that it's going right now. And there's an online version of the show um, in, for the Minneapolis show right now too. So you could kind of Brilliant. explore online. Brilliant, thank you, Amen. If Look, if you wanna take a trip to Tanzania to go check it out, there's no COVID there, so you're more than welcome <laughs> for being on here again thank you sean my family's co-host thank you producer and thank you for tuning in please like and subscribe stay tuned for some of the clips on youtube but get it all on the patreon and we'll see you next time bye bye goodbye